You can very often gauge a meeting by the type of prayer that is offered. I don't know whether you agree with me. I mean, we talk to one another, and but then when we are dealing with the things of God in prayer, we begin to manifest what really is in our hearts most. And I was able to say Amen very really when we had our brother's prayer. Because he didn't mention the word right division. He didn't mention the word dispensational truth. But I'll tell you what he did mention. He mentioned the person and work of Christ from beginning to end. Now I would commend that thought to you friends. Because you see, those who misunderstand us, they think that we're a peculiar people in a wrong sense. We are a peculiar people in a right sense. But they think we're peculiar that we're everlastingly dealing with some principle that they don't understand. We're talking about a mystery and they think it's some spooky business. And they misunderstand us right and left. So, shall we remember that one of the first things that right division does is to put our Lord in his supreme place. You see, we mustn't be so concerned with the dispensational teaching of Scripture and the principle of right division to see what we get out of it. All we shall get out of it, all that God intends. But, when you begin to put the Word of God in its right relationship by using this principle of right division, One of the first and essential things is to see where Christ comes into it. And if you can put him in his scriptural place, everything else fits. And though you may, as the Apostle said, speak with the tongue of men and angels, and know all mysteries, and you haven't got Christ as the beginning, and the middle, and the end of your witness, well, it'll be like sounding brass and tinkling cymbal. So that I feel I would like to stress. I'm not saying that you don't do it, but keep it uppermost. So that if you have to give uh, a reason for the hope that is within you, don't take too long before they are conscious that without the person and work of the Son of God, you have no hope, and it doesn't matter two hoops to you whether Paul was the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles will not, for Paul cannot save us. Paul cannot give us a hope of glory. It's only because he was sent to represent the Christ of God. I was always thankful for one note that was expressed and I put it in the Berean. I had that visit year, in the year, year before last that I had to take in the United States. And of course I went, went over there with one particular object to try to lay before those folks in different parts of the United States the essential value of this principle, this great stress upon dispensational truth and of course I had to dig it in as best I could all the time. And then it was passed on to me a criticism that was passed upon my work. And it was passed by someone who didn't quite believe all that I said. So it was a criticism. And you may know what that criticism was. The criticism was that my witness was Christocentric. Or put it the other way around. That my witness was ever putting Christ in the centre. My, I hope they'll criticise me like that till my work's done. Don't you? That is surely in harmony with the mind and will of God. That he, Christ the Son of God, should be put central in all our witness and all our explanation. When you come to this principle of right division and you look at the purpose of God in the Scriptures, well, you discover that Christ has many offices to fulfil and many spheres to occupy. If you are reading a Scripture which stresses that Christ is the king, 
and he's one day to sit upon the throne of his father David, will you know you're dealing with what we call kingdom truth, which has to do with the people of Israel and the fulfilment of the promises of God which relate even to this earth. Then if you're reading another scripture which stresses that he is the bridegroom, well, that is now dealing with another sphere of dressing which is associated with the new Jerusalem and the bride of the Lamb. And then if you're reading further scriptures where Christ is stressed as the head and the fullness, then you're in the last and uppermost sphere where you have the church, which is his body. But in each case, you can't have a kingdom without the king. And it's no good having the marriage supper of the lamb and no bridegroom there. And what's the use of belonging to the body if there be no living, glorious head? So that is what I feel that is most needful for us to stress one to another and keep uppermost in our minds. And I'm, I feel sure you agree with that and are glad that is so. Well now, this principle of right division, we have emphasised it, you've had the uh, tape recordings, you've heard it over and over again, so that I won't go into that except in case anybody is at all uh, uh, uncertain. There are some who have a fear that if you attempt this right division, you'll be cutting the word of God to pieces. That is not right division, that's wrong division. So I would, I sometimes put this question to a person that is a bit timid. He says, I, I don't like to think about this dividing the word of God. I believe it's inspired. Oh, I say, friend, is that so? Now, supposing you were limited. You were only allowed to quote from one book of the Bible what would be your proof text that the scriptures are inspired? Well, you know, most people, if they know the Bible, will say, oh, 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Well, I said, the very epistle that you go to to prove that all scripture is true says, rightly divide it. The second chapter. The same writer, the same epistle that says it's all true says, but you won't get the truth out of it. And you'll be ashamed of your work if you don't realise that it has got a message for more than one type of person. You see, that slipshod method, method that says, all oh, the Sermon on the Mount's good enough for me, that's all the Christianity I need. And you say, and when this life is over and you enter into your blessed hope, where will you be? Or oh, I'll be up in heaven. Is that so? When I read the Sermon on the Mount, the meek shall inherit the earth. You're not believing the book when you're dealing like that. It means what it says. So you must go somewhere else if you want to find a heavenly calling, not the Sermon on the Mount. So that the, the very principle of right division is acknowledging and believing that God means all that he says. And you mustn't take it and twist it and spiritualize it to fit some private interpretation of your own. And then there's another uh, little objection sometimes that you might meet. The passage that we quote starts with the word study. Study to show thyself approved unto God. And some people get bothering at that word study. They say, well, I'm not much of a scholar. Uh, grammar's a terrible bugbear to me. So it is to me, friends, and most people who have anything to do with it. It doesn't mean that you've got to be what we call a student. Because if you go on and read the verse far enough, you'll find he's speaking about a workman. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed. And that word study is the word endeavour to keep the unity of the Spirit, or be thou diligent to come to me. It's work, not merely sitting at a desk, 
and writing on paper. Oh no, it's a job of work, and a job of work cannot be done unless it is rightly divided. So, instead of saying that this principle of right division is a very abstruse, abstract thing that only the deepest and highest of intellects can ever grasp, you say why it's done every day by anybody who runs a home or runs a business. There are one or two here who've got homes. And I'm sure that if the rooms in that home are not rightly divided, there'd be trouble. You imagine in one of your home's friends, I'll speak to the ladies who have to look after it. Your husband has no idea of right division, so he wheels his motorbike straight into the drawing room because he wants plenty of room to clean it. Oh, you should say you don't use the drawing room for cleaning motorbikes. Oh, don't have an idea. No, we rightly divide our rooms. Or you take a business. There's the manufacturing side, but there's the management side, and there's the buying side, and there's the selling side. That's right division. And then, you know there is a, a scripture in the Old Testament that Timothy knew, because he was brought up by a grandmother and a mother that loved the word of God, and being the son of a Greek, and living in the day he did, his Bible would have been not the authorised version, or even the Hebrew, but the Greek Old Testament, which we call the Septuagint. And when Paul wrote to Timothy and said, rightly dividing the word of truth, Timothy didn't have to sit down and say, now, I wonder what he means by rightly dividing. Because if there's one book in the Old Testament that a Jewish mother would teach her little son would be portions of the book of Proverbs, especially written for his guidance. And he would immediately remember that in our version it says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understandings. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. But in Timothy's Bible, he shall rightly divide thy paths. But of course, direct. The word direct means rightly divide. D-I is good enough to divide. And rect, well, that's all rect to do. That's a rectangle. That's the word right. Have you never stepped out of a railway station in a new place, a strange place, and you see somebody there, and you say, uh, could you direct me to, and you give the address? And if that person says, um, let me see, I, uh, I say, oh, thank you, I'll ask somebody else. I hope you do that. Now, the person that I want is going to rightly divide Maidstone or Ashford or whatever it might be. Rightly divide it because he says, look, he says, take the third turning on the right, go as far as the church, cross the little bridge and there you are. He's rightly divided the whole of the district. He's not all over the place, it's cut like that. So, that word in, in the uh, Old Testament gives you the light. That the word right division means that you've got all the way through the scripture to remember, follow the signpost. Rightly divide thy paths, a path, the way you're walking. And then the next thing is this. You don't see all the signs at once. What would you imagine of the, of the uh, driver of the Royal Scot, just as it's ready to leave London, to make its journey up north? And he says, but I can't see all the signals from here to Scotland. Of course, no man in his senses would talk like that. You don't see all the signposts on the road. You see one at a time. One at a time. But as long as you're following them, you'll get them. When you get to the crossroad, there they are. And in the study of Scripture, you want to continually to see to it that it's like a book, that's a chart, that it's a map, and this, this pathway is leading to kingdom truth. This path, that pathway is leading to church truth. 
This pathway says Jew, this pathway says Gentile. This pathway says Peter, this one says Paul. This one says Earth, this one says Heaven. It's dividing it just like that, as you go. So there it is. But there is one Old Testament scripture where the word right division comes in the Greek version of the Old Testament, which is of very tragic importance. Now, this is not exactly the same word that we have in the 2 Timothy, but it is a similar word, and in the English translation it is word rightly divided. So I'm going to turn to the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis. You may not uh, appreciate the thought at first that you could get the word right division in the book of Genesis 4, but you know the story that Cain and Abel are brought before us at the end of certain days there was, the tab- there was the tabernacle at the, at the gate of the garden. There were the cherubim. And at a certain time, these two men brought their offering to the Lord. It was evidently an act of worship. Now, there was a difference between those two. They both brought an offering to the Lord, like that. But, Abel also brought a lamb. In the New Testament, it says, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Cain, as far as we know, would bring the best he could from his field. But he didn't realise that the best that we can bring is no satisfaction for our sin. And Abel, he brought the best that he could as an act of worship, but he covered it by the lamb from the flock. The blood of Abel is mentioned in the epistle to the Hebrews. The blood of Christ, the mediator, speaks better things than the blood of Abel, but it shows it was a type. Now, this is where the word right division comes in that Old Testament uh, translation. Verse 7. Our version says, If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lies at the door. Now, that's been very much misunderstood, as though uh, sin is waiting to pounce on you, you know, they put it to your door. No, the door is that door where they brought their offering. The door of the, uh, the gate of the garden. And the word sin is to Psalms 23. It makes me to lie down in green pastures. That's not waiting to spring on anybody. No, said God to, to Cain. If you have done right, you don't need a saviour. If there's anybody in this room who's never sinned and never will sin, well, you can do without Christ. But, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So he says, if you haven't done right pain, there's your remedy. The sacrifice is catching at the door. Do what your brother Abel did. Now, into the translation, these words are put. If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. And if thou doest not well and hast not rightly divided, that slipped in there. What did he not rightly divided? He not rightly divided his own offering that he could bring, and the offering of Christ, without which it was all in vain. So you see, that man's salvation, and all who go in the way of Cain, is hinged upon not rightly dividing between what God will accept from us, and what he could only accept from Christ. So I think that shows you that it's not a trifling thing. Neither is it a trifling thing to have your path rightly directed, we don't think it's a trifling thing in the ordinary day, if we're out with a car, or if we're walking, or wherever we're going. We don't think it's a trifle that we get lost. And we shouldn't think it's a trifle that we get lost in the mazes and wonders of Scripture, when God has 
given us at every possible turn these guidances to help us to track our path home. Well, so far. Well, then, the next thing that we find this principle of right division does is to help us to realise that this Bible is a book of purpose. There are some folks who treat the Bible as they treat a box I've seen on some people's sideboards. Uh, I'd like to sit officiously, get it and put it in the waste paper basket. But they open a box and they put a thing in, they put out a promise for the day. You see? Well, that's a sort of hit and miss business. God hasn't written his book that you should treat it like that. And people who do all sorts of things, you know, linking scriptures together. Dr. Bullinger gave one example, a very terrible one. He, he put two scriptures together. Judas went and hanged himself. That was one text. Go thou and do likewise. That's another text. Well, that's terrible, isn't it? No, but the moment you see that the Bible is a book of purpose, that from the beginning to the end, it's written not to tell us all things, not to satisfy all our curiosity, but to show us that God has a purpose of redeeming love that starts at the creation of Genesis 1 and leads us right on to the end of the book of Revelation and beyond until we reach the time when the Son shall hand up a perfect kingdom to the Father that God may be all in all. Now, what shall I do? I've got in front of me all this book and I've got in front of me roughly about half an hour. Well, you see, I can remember a big store in America and got a notice up. If you want an impossibility, we'll send it by return of post. But if it happens to be a miracle, it'll take a bit longer. So I'm conscious that it'll be like a miracle to take a bit longer. But I rather think I might help you if I now attempt, in the time I have, to give just the barest sketch of the whole Bible. Like that, you see. And of course, uh, that's uh, giving you credit for knowing the Bible a bit and for be willing to have it done in that way. Now, I'm going to start right at the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And you know that there's something in the Bible, like this 12th Psalm said, the words of the Lord are pure words, they're perfect. And the number of perfection in Scripture is the number seven. Now, of course, here's a happy hunting ground for a fertile mind and you can go off the deep end with it properly. I remember reading in the uh, News Chronicle, because I think um, Hubert Phillips, who writes the crosswords, has got a knowledge of the Bible and a very keen interest in that myth, because he's always cutting bits out in his crosswords. But he's got a long list about numerics in one paragraph. And he got Winston, Spencer, Cadney, all I think the things he got all about Winston Churchill, all with number seven on them. He was saying, you see what people can do if they wish. Now don't do that. But when you open the Hebrew Bible and you look at the first verse, it's got just seven words. Our version says, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. They stand a little differently in the original. Seven words. Fourteen syllables. 28 letters, and then multiples of seven with regard to the prominent words. The first verse. See? In the beginning. <laughs> now, what should we do when we get to the other extreme? What are we going to put there? In the beginning. Then cometh the end. 1 Corinthians 15. Then cometh the end. 
when he should have put down all authority, all power, the last enemy that should be destroyed is death, and then shall the Son himself be subject unto him to put all things unto him, that God may be all in all. There's your first line, there's your last line in the word of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that God may be all in all. What a long time it's taken, isn't it? So we think. But God says, don't reckon time, don't reckon my time as you reckon it. Because if we are right in saying we are nearly 6,000 years since the creation of Adam, and I think we are, we can't say exactly, God hasn't yet had one working week, friends, not from his point of view. 6,000 years is like the day, six days to him, followed by the seventh, which is the millennium, and then he starts all over again on the first day of the week, right the time when the thing's going to be completed. So there's a point. Now the next is this. That although we have in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, something happened. Because the, the next verse in the book of Genesis seems to give us an indication of something that went wrong. Now, if you've got your Bible open, and you're reading the authorised version, will you notice, in verse 2, the word was. In the first line, the word was is put in the ordinary type, just the same as the rest of the words. But when it comes the second time, and in the, uh, when it says, and darkness was, upon the face of the deep, it's put in italic type. Now, the printer has had enough bother to print the Bible without doing that unnecessarily, all over the page, printing the word was, sometimes in one type, sometimes in another. Must have been a reason, wasn't there? Well, the reason is this, that in the Hebrew language, there is no actual verb to be, or we ever get grammar again. You know, be is I am, thou art, he, and all that business, you see. They assume it. They just don't say it. So it sounds Irish. When the verb to be is in the Old Testament, it's not the verb to be at all. It's the verb to become. See? Now, will you turn the page, chapter 2. Verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. You see? Now that's the word which is translated was in the first part of that verse. Not that the earth was created for chaos, but it became so. It became so. So I've got now, in the beginning of creation, how far back that goes, nobody can tell. Now I've got something that happened. And that brings me right on to the moment when Adam was created. And these poor children of ours, in their schools, are being told they cannot possibly believe the Bible now because it tells you that the whole creation, heaven and earth and all the universe, was created about 6,000 years ago. The Bible doesn't say so. The Bible says we're not concerned with geology and all those things. We're concerned with redeeming fallen man. And so... One verse is all it says about countless ages of time. Then one verse says, and the earth became without form and void and darkness upon the face of the deep. It doesn't say so why there, but other scriptures tell you. Uh, take, for instance, a passage in Hebrews 2. God has not put in subjection the world to come to angels, 
he said. Well, that seems to suggest that some world was put out of the dominion of angels. And there is a possibility that when we read about by pride fell the angels and so on, it was to do with that world that had to be destroyed. Now we come to our calling, our period, our time, all just within a few thousand years. And God put a man into this world and said something about him, as far as we know, that was not said of any creature that he ever made before. He said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And that man, Adam, was the picture of him that was to come. Now, the word Adam has been explained in most books to be red earth, because he was taken out of red earth. That gives one up for old Devonshire, doesn't it? Red Dem. But as far as I know, the land of Palestine or Armenia or wherever it was the Garden of Eden was, is not necessarily red. Now here's a point. We know why Cain was called Cain. Because his mother said, I have gotten, that's the word Cain, I have gained a man. We know why Eve was called Eve, because Eve is a part of the word to live. She's the mother of all living. We know why Seth was called Seth, because it means set. For God hath appointed me another seed. Well, so surely if we know why they were called their names, surely the first man, Adam, ought to have a meaning. Well, now it's resident in chapter 1, verse 26, when it says, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion. That word likeness contains the radical letters that give you the word Adam. Of course, I, I can't teach you Hebrew tonight for two reasons. One, I haven't time, and the other, I don't know it enough. But I do know this, that most Hebrew words are made up of a triliteral root, just three letters. And then they stick bits on this end and bits on that end and build up a word of any length. And right in front of you, the two words come together in this verse. So the word man is the first occurrence of the word Adam in the Bible. God said, let us make Adam in our image after our devils is the word is the word with a D-M element in it in the middle. And the word means likeness. Adam was put into this world as a prefiguration of him that was to come. So, there's a good many of God's people who don't know that the type of Christ is the second man, the last Adam. Here's the first, a likeness. Here's the second, the reality. So again, you see, Christ is filling the story. Now we turn the, back the page to chapter 1 for a moment, and we notice that on the second day of creation, we read verse 6, And God said, Let there be a firmament. Now that has also been taken up by some of those who object to the Bible. They say, you see, you're trying to make us believe a lot of folklore when people believe that the sky was like a solid vault over your head, and that's nonsense. Well, of course it is nonsense. The reason why the word firmament has crept into our Bible is that our translators were very much in influenced in the early days by the Latin Vulgate. And the Latin Vulgate reads the word firmamentum. You see? But they were trying to put down what they saw in the Greek Old Testament, and that was stereoma. You know what stereoma means? Something rigid. There are some people who come to your meeting and you say, oh, they've got a stereotype mind, you can't do anything with them. See? 
But the word stereoma was an attempt to translate the word you've got in the margin of your Bible, rachia, which in the Hebrew means intensely thin, an expansion. So it says, and God said, let there be an expansion. And he called that expansion heaven. Verse 8. Now if you'll turn to Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, makes me think of when I was over in America, of course I, I, I said to them, I'm, I'm apostolic in one thing, uh, the apostle said that the Corinthians said his bodily presence is mean, and of course I was no, nowhere near the statue of some of these folks from Texas, and his speech contemptible, I said I can't betray, the, I can't disguise the fact I've come from London. And one of them stopped me in the meeting. He said, you keep saying Isaiah. We say Isaiah. I said, you say pyjamas. I say pyjamas. And it went down in the record. There it is. They've still got the record with my pyjamas in the middle of it. No, I lost them. Actually, they're floating about America now. So I mean, I don't know where. But still, that's all in passing. You see, now Isaiah uh, 40, verse 20. Two. Isaiah 40. It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. Now that's God's comment, you see. That's what he did when he made this limited universe. We're living inside a limited heaven. Well, you may say you can see white to the Milky Way. Yes, but you don't know what you're looking through, do you? Because the scripture says there's waters above the heavens. And if they were far enough up, they wouldn't interfere with light at all. We're enclosed for a time being. In what way are we enclosed? Over and over and over again, it tells us that the heavens above us are stretched out, stretched out, like a curtain for God to dwell in, to tabernacle in. The whole of this present creation, of which we form a part, is likened by God to a tabernacle. And a tabernacle is for the working out of his redemptive purpose. And it's a tent that when the work's done, it can be rolled up and put away, and there's a heaven and earth that will never pass away. Now that's where you get. The Apostle Peter says, a day is coming when this heaven's going to depart like a scroll and things in it are going to be dissolved. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwell his righteousness. Now you see, it's all fitting. Now, one other feature, if you'll turn to the book of Job, and that is a very misunderstood book as far as some of us feel, the book of Job, and look at chapter 38. Here God is challenging Job, and this challenge could well be listened to by some of our scientific brethren who know everything. He says in this Job 38 verse 4, Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Verse 6, Whereupon are the foundations that are fastened? The foundations. Now that word foundation is a peculiar word, and it occurs about 50 odd times in the book of Exodus and elsewhere in Moses' writings, for the silver sockets on which the tabernacle rested. That very word occurs only in Job, in Moses, and one reference in the Song of Solomon. That's all. 
And here we've got then, that God says the sky above you is like the tent of the tabernacle and the foundations on which this earth rests. I use a very word socket, and those silver sockets were made of redemption money. And then, all the way through, in this tabernacle, you beat the cherubim. They're at the Garden of Eden. There they are in the tabernacle of Moses. There they are in the Temple of Solomon. There they are in the Book of the Revelation. Now, what's the, ta- what's the, ta- the uh, cherubim stand for? Well, you read some books, that's you and me, uh, with the church. Uh, whatever, whatever you read in the scripture is the church. Well, they say, well, wait a minute. Here the cherubim are put right at the moment when Adam and Eve had lost the Garden of Eden and were expelled. And they were associated with keeping away from the tree of life. I could almost imagine that Eve would sir, turn to Adam and she'd say, Look at those strange beings there, Adam. What do you think they stand for? Adam may have meditated a time. And it may be that God told them. And he said, you see, there are four creatures there in that cherubim. Yes. A man. Yes. A lion. An ox. An eagle. Man was given dominion over the beast of the field, the cattle, the fowl of the air. And he says, there they are, preserved in your outside. God's pledge that the dominion that he'd given to Adam would one day be restored under the second man, the last Adam. When the Noah's Ark came along, he didn't have to paint on it lions and cattle. They said, why? Well, he's got them. he got them inside. And then they're on the mercy seat. And then in the book of the Revelation, there they are. Taking their part, translated beasts, but wrongly so, the cherubim. And there is one little feature that I must mention. If you get the perfect structure, you know some of us do uh, believe a lot in the value of getting a structure of a thing, if it's a genuine scriptural one. You get a cherub that fell, Ezekiel 28, an anointed cherub that by disobedience fell, by aspiring to be like God. And we don't seem to get anything balances that in all this record of the cherubim. Get everything else. You get paradise lost with the cherubim in Genesis 3 and paradise restored with the cherubim in the Revelation. Oh, it's there. Tree of life. Water. Everything. And then you say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Why were four Gospels written? Why not five or six or three? Matthew, the king. That's the lion. Mark, the servant, that's the ox. No genealogy in Mark. You don't ask a person whether his parents came over with William the Conqueror, you want to know whether he can do his job. No genealogy in Mark. The ox. Luke, the man, is the only one who mentions Adam. Only one. And John, in the beginning, was the word, the flying eagle. And Christ is the one that balances the anointed Messiah Cherub that fell by pride. And he left the glory and humbled himself and became the man. Well, now we're getting these, this sort of thing before us. Now, before we leave Genesis 1 and take up any further part of it, just think of Moses standing there in the beginning and John standing there at the end, the revelation. Let's come to Revelation first. 
When you get to chapter 4, you start the visions of the book of Revelation. And you'll discover that there are seven of them. Double. Heaven and earth. Heaven and earth. Heaven and earth. Seven times. Now, John was looking to something future. Only God could tell him. And the way he told him was by giving him a series of visions. And he wrote it down. Now, Moses is standing looking this way. Back to a creation that nobody could tell him anything about except God. And he gave it to him in seven visions. People have tried to fit in the six days creation with the strata of the earth. It's not written for that purpose at all. You think of the multiplicity of creation. And in six days, what do you read? First day God said, let there be light. That's all he did. Just that. And in the next day, he stretched out the firmament. And then the next day he said, let the dry land appear. He didn't create it, it was there all the time. The water was moved. And so on. But there's countless of things that must have been done in between to link them all together and, and uh, make them consistent that couldn't possibly be packed in. The book of Genesis, why if Moses had been commissioned to write a, a genuine detailed record of creation, he'd be still at it. We're still finding out today the things that are embodied in this creation that God made then. So he simply said to Moses, now I'll give you six visions. To John he said, I'll give you six visions. To Moses he said, I'll give you six visions of what I have done in getting this earth ready. And to John he said, I'll give you six visions of what I will do to bring the new heaven and new earth into its place. And that's where we stand at the beginning and the end. Now inside then we have the working out of redemption. Well, our particular calling, our particular calling, I'm speaking to those now who have followed the teaching of dispensational truth and rejoice in the epistle to the Ephesians as the great basis upon which they rest. Our particular calling is the only calling that pierces that curtain that's stretched out. All others are beneath and within that stretched out firmament. But the only place, the only occasion when any believer is said, to have gone far above all heavens is the church of the one body who are now potentially seated together in heavenly places where Christ sits at the right hand of God. And that is this calling, this dispensation is the only one that will not come to an end and then after a long period be picked up and finished. It stands right bang in the middle and there it is. We're at the end of it. It had its gap. It's already passed. It was introduced by the Apostle Paul. It was misunderstood, even in his own day, and neglected. And then after dark ages had passed, God chose a few earthen vessels and sent them out to make it known at the end. Not because God's purpose has slipped, because every single member of the body of Christ can read in the Scriptures that they were chosen in Him before they overthrow all foundation of the world. So that doesn't make us fatalists, but it does make us see this, that we cannot, as it were, press a person into this calling by any argument we can invent. What we are to do is to be ready, always ready, when we see the movement on a person who wants to know just to give him everything you've got to help him. But all the argument in the world will never take the place of the fact that God knew and has prepared beforehand. Well now, will you tell me how much time I have left before? Yes, all right. 
Well, now, I think for the moment, we'll leave that endeavour to sketch out. You see, I've just given you the idea that this present 6,000 years is just like a tabernacle in which God will work out his redemptive purpose and then it will be folded up and put away and then be hidden of Genesis 1, verse 1, that's never been touched at all, where it's the highest heaven of all will be open once more, and there will be that a sphere of blessing about which we can only imagine. So I'm going to now turn to the Epistle of the Ephesians and use the rest of our time to just point out again what you know already, but it's good to go over it again and rejoice together a few outstanding features. The first thing that we must always remember about the epistle to the Ephesians is the necessity to balance our teaching. We can be so enthusiastic about all spiritual blessings as to forget that it wants and needs a corresponding spiritual walk. And we can do damage to truth if we're always arguing about the mystery and never seek to walk worthy. So the first point is that the epistle to the Ephesians is so written with its three chapters that side which are mainly to deal with doctrine, and three chapters that side which are mainly to deal with practice. And they're balanced on one word that comes practically in the centre of the epistle to the Ephesians, which is chapter 4. The beginning of chapter 4. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy. Now that word worthy, axios, is made of a word which suggests a balance. And when it is used in um, Romans, the translation is extended to give the idea of something balanced. He says, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared. To be compared is not there, but it's put in to show you that the word worthy means to compare or balance. So the first thing is, don't be so concerned about all the ins and outs of your high calling as to forget that if it is yours, all remember that if God has given you that calling, he's expecting you to have that walk. Now you may never get that pair of balances straight in this life. But it's something to know that it's possible or it's something to be aimed at. See, the old world has a proverb that the man who aimed at the moon, he got a bit higher than the man who aimed at the gooseberry bush. We may never get it straight. But surely we must see that that's a part of our calling. And this word worthy is so important that it comes in each one of Paul's three prison epistles. In Philippians he says, as becometh the gospel of Christ. That's the same word worthy. And in Colossians he says, worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. So he wants that to be emphasised. This balancing of doctrine and practice. And there are some who have complained about folks who have got the heady idea of their calling and it never got down as far as their feet. We've got to walk with regard to our calling as well as have our head up in the sky. Now with that, we'll look back at chapter 1 of Ephesians. And we notice that the first thing, the very first thing which he says after his introduction, is not to ask God for anything, but to bless God for everything. We are, we are so overwhelmed with riches that the opening words are, Blessed be God. Not, Oh God, bless me. Blessed be God. And you know that the word blessed translates two words in the New Testament. One, we hardly ever think of speaking of God being happy. But the word, one word, 
really means to be genuinely happy. And it wouldn't do us any harm sometimes when we're up to our neck in misery to realise that it speaks about God who is happy. You see, he, he could see the end from the beginning. He could see beyond the present stress and strain and misery and sorrow. He knows, we don't, but we can trust him. Now this word doesn't mean happy. It means, or literally, to be well spoken of. It's the word eulogy. It's the uh, word that is generally reported in the newspaper that uh, the Honourable Mr. So-and-so made a very eulogistic speech at the end of the dinner. You see, he stands up and says, Oh, silence for the feces. Ladies and gentlemen, see like that. Well, I don't think that's much of a eulogy. But still, it means to give all credit. Always says, let's speak well of God. For certainly he's spoken well of us. Not of us, of ourselves, but he never sees us now outside of his son. Oh, what a wonderful hymn that is that we sung, wasn't it? His perfectness is mine. All that he is, God sees in me. He has indeed spoken well of us. Let's speak well of him. And what has he said about this, these blessings? Well, our version says they're all spiritual, with an S on the end of blessing. Well, that's all right. But strictly speaking, he put it the other way around. He has blessed us with every blessing that is spiritual. Well, that, that takes our breath away because we don't really know every blessing that is spiritual. Well, then to move from that, they're going to be enjoyed somewhere. And they're going to be enjoyed in heavenly places. Now, this epistle is the only epistle that uses that phrase. Of course, the word heavenly comes all over the Bible, but in heavenly places, here and nowhere else. If you look at the closing verses of this same chapter, you'll see that it's located. In verse 20, Christ is at the right hand of God in heavenly places. And those are far above all principality and power. And in chapter 2, you're definitely told, in verse 6, that he hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places. So wherever these heavenly places are, they are where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. And that is not in this limited curtain. That's far above all heavens. Will you look at um, Ephesians 4 for the way in which he stresses that? Verse 10. He that descended is the same also that ascended up where? Far above all heavens. Far above them all, however many there are. That he might fit all things. And we are told in the epistle to the Hebrews that he has passed through the heavens and that he's made higher than the heavens. So here's evidence, you see, that beyond this curtain in which we're living, there is a sphere, and that sphere belongs to the church of the one body. No descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in covenant relationship with God at any place there. Isn't that marvellous? The poor outside Gentiles, who have no covenants and no hope and no promises, they've got that. That's grace indeed. Well, then the next piece in Ephesians 1 is that we were chosen at a peculiar period, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, most of you know that there are two sets of passages, before the foundation of the world and from the foundation of the world. In Matthew, we get, Come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you, from or since the foundation of the world. But this is before. And there's only two other passages where that expression comes. 
and they both have to do with Christ. In John 17 he said, Thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. And in First Peter he was set forth as a lamb without blemish and without spot before the foundation of the world. Now you look at this. What were the two words? Love and without blemish. Now look here. Verse 4. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame that's the word blemish before him in love. The very words that are said of Christ before the foundation of the world loved and holy and without blemish are said of you and me because we were chosen in him. Then the next thing is we look at this word foundation and we find there's no word foundation there. If you want the true word foundation you look at chapter 2 verse 20 and are built upon the foundation. That's the true foundation but it's a different word. And going back to the usage of this expression in the Old Testament the verbal form of this word which is translated here foundation is used to batter a wall down with a, with a battering ram not to build it up. You say you, you mean to say that we've got to read here, chosen in him before the overthrow of the world? Yes, before Genesis 1 verse 2, before the earth became without form and void, before the fall of the angels, before the principalities fell. You see, that's what happened then. And now we're above principalities. And, do you notice in Ephesians 3, that one of the reasons why Paul was commissioned to reveal the mystery, is not only that you should know it, not only that I should know it, but that now, with the intent that now, verse 10, unto principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. God's teaching them, and they've waited ever since Genesis 1, verse 2, those principalities and powers, to learn what God was doing and why, till we come on the scene. Oh, you say these things are extraordinary, but it's an extraordinary thing that we're dealing with. We're dealing with a purpose and the next thing is, I think we'll have to come to an end here pretty soon. And that is, that from the beginning to the end of the Bible, it doesn't veil the fact that God has a tremendously powerful and wise enemy. We might boast about God being almighty to do everything. I'm glad he can't. Oh, but he can't lie, that's one thing. Some things God cannot do, for right is to him far more than might. And we might say he could, he could have swept away Satan like that. But he didn't. He's got a wise purpose. He's dealing with a moral creation, not mechanical. And he's allowing this thing to work out. And he's teaching lessons to those invisible powers that never forget. And we're a part of the scheme. And right the way through the word of God, we have this enemy dogging the purpose of God, imitating it, and attempting to frustrate it. And not until... Not until all delegated authority has ceased. You think in the millennium, when we have that thousand years of reign in Christ, that that's a perfect kingdom. Well, they yield faint obedience while they're in it, and as soon as the millennium's over, Gog and Magog come up like the sand of the sea to invest Jerusalem. And in that millennial kingdom, there's been the twelve apostles sitting upon twelve thrones, there's been the resurrected David, sitting upon his throne as the Viceroy of the Son of God, and there's been the heavenly Jerusalem in the heavens but not yet to the earth, superintending. And it ends like that. Well then, we've got to the end of the seventh day, that now God says, I set aside 
all rule and all authority, every bit of it, good and bad, and Christ alone is going to take the complete control. And then, when he does that, he eventually brings a perfect universe that God may be all in all. I think we'll have time just to squeeze that verse in, and then I think I should have to say, well, that's as far as we can get. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24. Then cometh the end. Now forget all the rest of it and read the last uh, lines of verse 28. Then cometh the end, that God may be all in all. This doesn't mean the end, like you saw off a piece of wood. This is the end or purpose for which a thing is made. Not the end of time, but the object. Then cometh the end, but then he says, oh, but it's got a series of steps. When? He shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. When? He shall have put down all rule, all authority and power, for he must reign, till he hath put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet, but when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him. He is the goal of the ages, that God may be all in all. When he created heaven and earth, God was all. When you and I are brought from sin and shame by redeeming love, God will be all in all. That's the difference. We haven't got to justify God, but he'll justify himself. He will show you that it was necessary that we should pass through this phase of tears. He knew when he made man that one day he was going to demand that he should not spare his beloved son. He knew. And please never think that God is sitting on some pedestal away in the blue, quite indifferent. It's otherwise. We are definitely told that he says, I, it repented him that he made man. Now, I don't think those words we put in scripture if God had no concern and no feeling about it. And when it says, he spared not his only son. Do you know, those are the very words that are used of Abraham when God says, Now I know thou fearest God, for thou hast not withheld thine only son from me. Abraham was feeling what it was for a father to give up a son. He walked with God. He said, That's only a little picture of what I'm doing. He says in the Old Testament, All their affliction, he was afflicted. He says, When you walk through the valley, I will be with you. God is telling us, He's not afar off, He's near. And one of the most extraordinary exhibitions of this is in the book of Job. When Job is wondering about death and wondering about resurrection, he says, I shall lie down till the heavens be no more. And then he speaks about God. He says, And thou wilt call, and I will answer thee. That's Job. Thou wilt have respect, or thou wilt have a desire unto the work of thine hands. Now you may not see in that all that Job intended. That word desire is the word that also gives us the word silver. Why? Not because it's a metal, because it means to turn pale. It's translated, I had fainted if I hadn't had an opportunity to go to the house of God. Job actually says God turns pale with his emotion at thinking at long last Job will be delivered from all his distresses and stand 
in resurrection, complete once more. That's not an indifferent God, is it? That's a God who's walking with you and me, and in some measure, enduring and suffering, not in a, not in a wrong sense, I don't mean, but not indifferent. He knows, and in fact he's told us in the epistle to the Hebrews, he said, no chastening, no chastening for the time being is pleasant. Oh, I'm glad he says that, but rather grievous, because it's not true, we don't like it. But he says, nevertheless, afterwards. So I go back to Job once more. He says in the 23rd chapter of Job, he said, I look forward, and I look backward, I look right hand, I look left. And I cannot find him. And if he was writing in modern language, he'd say, I'm up against a brick wall. I do not know, he said. Then he stops. He says, but he knows the way that I take. That's one good thing, isn't it? And when he has tried me, that's the word meaning to test the metal. Tried by fire. And you go back to the primitive days of an earthen pot, a charcoal fire, and a little bellows, and a cross-legged man sitting. And he puts the bellows on with a flame, and up comes a scum, and he takes it off. And then he puts the bellows on again. I don't know whether the metal likes it, possibly not. He takes it off. Then he hadn't got thermometers and gauges. The only way he knew whether the metal was completely purified was when sitting like that, he could see the reflection of his own face. And if you can't interpret that moral, I think I'll have to leave it. There. There is the end of all this purpose of God. That at long last, the scum removed, the testing done, and he sees the reflection of his own image. God has predestinated that every redeemed child of God, of whatever calling it may be, shall one day be conformed to the image of his Son. Is there any wonder that he says, and won't you seek, won't you seek just to be a little bit conformed to his image just now? And that's all that's involved in sanctification and growing in grace and walking worthy. Well, that's my little message for you tonight. I didn't know where I'd begin or where I'd end or what the middle would be. And if there's been no constructive teaching, well, you come again and you'll have our brother Stuart to be able to take it through decently and orderly and properly as he should. I've just enjoyed myself by being in your midst and I take back very happy uh, feelings of seeing this little gathering. I can picture you now when they say next meeting at Charles is going to be at a certain date. I shall see uh, in my imagination you sitting here and I can imagine Stuart standing here or I think he sits down sometimes, I don't know. But anyhow, uh, and that would be a joy and an encouragement to me to think that after sowing or throwing my bread on the waters, apparently wasting it and losing it, it's coming back after many days. Will you take the same encouragement yourself that if you do the same and you have to sow in tears? Well, don't forget the scripture says that those who sow in tears shall come and bring their sheaves with them. The Lord bless our little testament.